2: I first heard that Norman Lambert's suicide might have been something other than a suicide from my former boss, Heidi Hall. Long ago in the 1990s, Heidi worked as a reporter for the Sykeston Standard Democrat, a small daily newspaper in Sykeston. When I talked to Heidi, I knew nothing about Norman Lambert, how he died, or anything associated with him. I simply was going to Heidi for some advice on going about the investigative work I was doing. I had worked under Heidi when she was managing editor of the Southeast Missourian. By this time, she had worked as a journalist in Nashville. Heidi told me when she worked at the Standard Democrat, there were all sorts of rumors and tips that Lambert did not kill himself. She told me the reporters were not permitted to pursue such leads. On at least four different occasions, without prompting, Norman's death came up in the course of my investigation of Michelle Lawless. Let me be clear, though. I did not believe that Norm Lambert had anything to do with the Michelle Lawless murder. By the time David Rosener told me that there was a bank account that tied Norm Lambert with Kevin Williams and Bill Farrell, it pulled together a lot of what I had already been investigating. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this episode talking about Norm Lambert's death, but here's some of the bones of what happened. I had heard some information about the details of Lambert's suicide that sounded very suspicious. So I did a records request for the investigative files associated with his death. I was looking into a couple of other Scott County homicides, so I wrote a public records request for each death on a separate piece of paper. I called the coroner, who at the time was Scott Amick, and I told him I wanted to obtain some files. He said, sure, stop on by, so I did. When I arrived at his office, we talked a little bit about the other cases, including Mooney Neighbors and Russell Montjoy, two murder victims from Sykeston. But when I handed him the Lambert request, he inhaled and held his breath for a second or two. Then he exhaled. You know what this one was, don't you? He asked. I said, what was it? He said, it was a suicide. Then I asked him why he thought it was a suicide. He said, quote, because Bill Farrell told me it was a suicide, unquote. He went on to explain that this was... One of the only times, if not the only case, he could remember where Bill Farrell did not wait for him, the coroner, to arrive to determine cause of death as outlined in the statutes. But by the time Amick arrived, the weapon had been removed. A funeral home had been called to take the body away. The only file left in Amick's office was a note indicating the Sheriff's Department did the investigation and all files would be held there. So I requested the files from the Sheriff's Department. Amick's description of Farrell not waiting for him to arrive at the scene is not the reason, though, that I don't necessarily think Norm Lambert committed suicide. If it was suicide, it simply could not have happened the way Farrell's investigation had stated that it happened. A neighbor had been called to help look for Mr. Lambert. A neighbor came and found Lambert's jeep in the driveway. The neighbor opened the door and found Lambert dead, laying over the console into the passenger seat. He checked for a pulse and found none. Mr. Lambert died from a single shot to the head. There is no question about that. He had an entry wound on the right side and an exit wound on the left side of his head. The window to the Jeep was intact. No bullet was recovered. Let me repeat that so it sinks in. There was an entry wound. There was an exit wound. The window was rolled up. The neighbor had opened the door and no bullet was found as part of the investigation. The photos I obtained showed no blood spatter on the window or the white window panel on the jeep door. No blood spatter was observed outside the door either, according to one of the responding officers who talked to me. The bullet simply disappeared. It's no secret that Bill Farrell and Norm Lambert were close friends. In fact, when you go to the restaurant, you will see a mural on the wall, something like a less detailed version of a Norman Rockwell painting. In the mural, among other vignettes, you see depictions of Bill Farrell, Brenda Shivitz, and David Mann sitting at a table enjoying a Lambert's meal. I debated with myself several times whether to include Norman Lambert and the controversy surrounding him and his death in this podcast. As I said, I don't have any information that would suggest that Mr. Lambert was involved in Michelle's death in any way. But I do think he has something to do with the culture of the county, one where you go and tan at a salon at three in the morning... For a business owned by a self-described meth addict who operates his salon next door to the sheriff's family business. But when an attorney, specifically David Rosner, who knows the stakes involved, tells me on the record that Lambert, Bill Farrell, and Kevin Williams were tied financially, that pretty much sealed it for me. I could not confirm Rosner's statement that payments were issued to Norm Lambert, Bill Farrell, and Kevin Williams, among others, through this bank account. The files were destroyed a few years ago as a matter of routine housekeeping. You can only keep old files around for so long before you have to make room for more. But I haven't been able to get my hands on those documents. But I did get my hands on the lawsuit itself. It makes references to interrogatories that would have contained such information. It confirms Rosner did indeed represent the plaintiff. The lawsuit, in addition to other reporting I have done since, is consistent with other things that rosner told me my primary purpose in interviewing rosner was to find out why kevin williams's name came up in this investigation i wonder why he brought kevin in to testify in a deposition in 1993. i didn't even bring up the lambert name i didn't know or at least had forgotten that rosner had represented the plaintiff in the sexual harassment lawsuit Rosner's response about Lambert came as I was asking questions about Kevin Williams and Bill Farrell. Again, I didn't go around looking for the Norm Lambert story. It found me. Those at or near the top of the Lambert organization have a reputation for bad behavior. Norm Lambert had been sued in a separate sexual harassment case one other time, a suit that included his son Ben Lambert. Just a few years ago, as stated in an earlier episode, Ben Lambert was charged with possession of child porn and trafficking minors. He was ruled incompetent to stand trial for dementia related mental deficiencies. Another source who worked at Lambert's in the 1990s reviewed a list of names included in the speed bump files. Of the 100 or more names, which included several police officers, at least 12 of those names were former employees of Lambert's. Of those, one is still involved with the company, at least as recently as March of 2020. Meanwhile, Norm Lambert owned his own plane and hired his own pilot. Rosner said he flew the plane to places like the Baja Peninsula. Before he took over his mother and father's Tiny Sykston Diner and turned it into a destination restaurant, Norman Lambert was a coach and a teacher. Then we have Bill Farrell, the sheriff, Norman's close friend who's investigating this case. In the best light, Farrell did not do a thorough investigation. One source told me that Farrell rushed the investigation, telling officers it was a suicide and that he wanted to get it wrapped up as quickly as possible. This is the same man who refused to give Mark Abbott a polygraph or a blood draw, despite the fact that his story changed more than a dozen times in the course of the Michelle Lawless murder. This is the same man who formed the SEMO Drug Task Force and who, unlike other sheriffs, demanded that every search warrant conducted in his county go through him. This is the same man who befriended a chop shop operator by the name of Tom Brock, according to two sources. But what about this man named Kevin Williams? To this point in the podcast, you know Kevin Williams is a friend of Mark Abbott's. You know that he was a major meth dealer. You know he was a friend and a former employee of the man who owned the property near Michelle's murder scene, that being Glenn Farrell. You know that Kevin Williams might not have told the truth about his whereabouts the night of the murder, because Glenna Pierce, Heather's Pierce's mother, remembered Kevin Williams being at Country Nights that night. In fact, she remembered details about their conversation as to why he arrived later than Mark Abbott did. Kevin Williams says he was at a company party in commerce. But none of this directly implicates Kevin in Michelle's murder. Well. It's time you know more about why his name matters so much in this case. It's not just that he was close friends with Mark Abbott and sold drugs. It's that Mark Abbott, the identical twin who interacted with Michelle's body that night, told a police officer he saw his friend Kevin murder Michelle Lawless. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files.
3: But he answered when we got
0: talking about the conversation of Josh Kiesler being the one that done it, Abbott just looked at him and just kind of laughed a little bit. And he said,
3: yeah, they got they got the wrong guy for that. He said, I took care of that bitch. Neither Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampired or pregnant. Why was
0: that not done? I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. I. I don't know. I can see him being tied with Larry Abbott's mom and dad getting persuasion from them or Larry. I've got, I've got tickets for him.
4: And went towards Louisville, and Larry said, You got a ticket? I make a phone call. So give me that, I'll throw it away. I have a
2: source who told me that Larry Abbott, the twins' father, was at Kevin Williams' shop on a particular day in 1995. The source could name the day and the reason she remembered that day, which I have confirmed, but I'm not going to go into those details for fear of identifying the source through this description. I note that because the speed bump investigative files I have do not mention Larry Abbott by name. Kevin Williams would implicate Larry as a participant in the speed bump conspiracy by name in a later deposition, however. Kevin stated Larry would front cash for large buys in Southern California. I mentioned in episode 9 that Kevin Williams began to snitch within hours of his arrest. Once officers obtained the $20,000, Williams started giving up information. By that time, Kevin's sister had given birth to Mark Abbott's child. This means that Williams wasn't just turning on drug dealers, he was turning on family. I touched on a lot of the names and circumstances of Speed Bump in the last episode, but I wanted to reiterate how big an operation this was. It included DEA agents in California. When they made one of the busts out west, it included agents in helicopters trailing the drugs as they moved along the highway. I mean, it was a really big deal. As the accused parties were trying to decide whether to plead guilty or face trial, the prosecution listed 16 witnesses who would definitely testify. They included two Simo Drug Task Force members, several detectives from the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office, and from other police departments in California. It included Dr. Robert Briner of the SEMO Regional Crime Lab, but no law enforcement officer from Scout County. Now, there were another 34 witnesses listed who could have been called to testify. In that list, there was one officer from Sykeston, three from East Prairie, Missouri, three from Mississippi County, Missouri, and a few from the ATF and the Missouri Highway Patrol. But again, not a single deputy from Scott County, Missouri. During that time frame, Kevin Glazer became the head of the SIMO Drug Task Force, replacing Alan Faust. Remember, Faust was the one who approached Terry Williams, Kevin Williams' wife, after learning about the money back. So over the course of that investigation, Faust retired from the SIMO Drug Task Force and Glazer took charge. But both were on that list. So none of the major dealers in Southeast Missouri were immediately incarcerated. Kevin Williams, Mark, and Matt Abbott were all working with law enforcement as informants. But during this time, they kept doing large drug deals. I believe they were trying to make as much money as they could while they still had their freedom. Williams and Mark Abbott were actually arrested on multiple occasions during the time the gears were turning in the Operation Speed Bump investigation. Before Williams was sentenced in 1995, He went on a drive with a couple of friends of his, Robin and Helen Natvig. Both would later testify in Josh Kieser's hearing in 2008. I caught up with Helen and I talked with her. I apologize in advance for the audio quality here. I recorded this interview before I had figured out best practices to record telephone conversations. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved with Kevin?
4: Okay.
2: You know, how, how that came about?
4: We were doing meds at that time. My husband, Robin, we weren't married then. I was going through a bad divorce. Robin was living in commerce in David Kennedy's old building It used to be a store. It used to be a post office. And Kevin, uh, Kevin, uh, David Kennedy had bought it and had like a uh, rec room or something there at one time getting Robin. Well, anyway, he's having my husband, who is a carpenter, build an upstairs apartment in it. And. Uh, David had friends he ran with too and he knew he knew Kevin too but right. Anyway, well, I think he was getting some stuff for him too. Well that's how we got involved with getting a little here you know, a little bit of math here and there for Kevin. And he was a nice guy. he was a he was a bar brawler. He was the kind of guy that if you had you know, if he was your friend, it was a good thing. if he wasn't, he liked to fight. He did. But it wasn't like, you hold know, grudges against people either. I really liked Kevin. I liked his wife, too. I understand they're not married anymore. But anyway, um, these kids were real small then, real, real young. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, just, I just got talking one day. The cell, just got killed. I remember uh, when she got killed, I was still with my first husband, because I remember we had went in that restaurant that she worked in, like a week before she died. She had been our server and she was real petite, and little, and long red hair. And mm-hmm. have And she's only 19 years old when I found out, you know, that's terrible. And then uh, well, you know, I found out what happened to her. You know, she's murdered up there. But Anyway, Kevin got talking, and he got, he got, well, he got in, I think he got in over his head with the uh, mixed, you know, with all that drug stuff. And um, I think he knew what happened. We were all riding one day. He was real nervous, too. I think, I don't know if it was because he knew so much, guilty or what? I, I, yeah, I don't know if it, I think it really bothered me, I'll tell you that. That's talking about how that girl like got killed. Did you all hear about that on you know coming up the uh, up on the uh, exit on the you know vent from Sykes that's the way he said I thought it was the other way but it wasn't. And we said, Yeah, we heard something about it. He said no. well I think I know the people that that were in on that. He said, I think Mark Abbott was in on that. And, uh, we said, your kid, I didn't know either one of them, but Robin knew him. them Not real well. He would associated with him a couple times before. Mark gave him the creeps, he told me. But, uh, he said, yeah, He said, uh, did you ever say exactly, Robin, why, why, why they done it? Why he thought they done it? I I thought he told us that she knew too much about something. Yeah, yeah. knew too much. Yeah. And she threatened one of them. I'm thinking it was Mark." Yeah, Mark, Mark made her mad or something. Uh, he was probably the kind of guy that just used the rules anyway. But Michelle liked him. Apparently she dated both of them for what we understood. But Mark made her mad or something. She threatened him as far as I'll, I'll tell what I know on you or something. And that's the reason Kevin thought was killed. He also told us there were several people involved. It wasn't just Mark. And he said there was a big truck that was parked for that uh, on the, we call that exit on that exit. Mm-hmm. I know it was an inner ramp. It was a going up into business. So it was an inner ramp, not right. an exit ramp. Right. And he said there, he thought there was a big truck parked there. And somebody got out that knew her. I'm thinking probably Mark. Because Mark was the one that turned it in and actually told that he was Matt. But it wasn't Matt. It was Mark. And uh, stopped her and he him, so she told him to stop. She didn't set her car off. She never shut her car off. And uh, and that's where it started. And basically that's all he told to us. And then when we rode by uh, barrels later, he said he pointed at a little bit of camp, or it was almost a camper, of small. We got a single white trailer. Yeah, a smaller one. Maybe think of a camper, but it was and it was a mobile home. He said it was over there too. it Started over there or something like that. and I said really? He said yeah yeah I remember thinking, I just remember uh, my hair is standing up all over my body thinking it's awful, you know. I said, yeah. Well, you know, uh why do you want to associate with people like that? He said, I don't. He said, I don't want to associate with people like that. I could tell it bothered me. And some people said it bothered him because he was guilty. Maybe he was, I don't know, Bob. I, I like to think he wouldn't, but he knew way too much. I do know that. For somebody that wasn't there, you know what I mean? Yeah,
2: yeah. Um,
4: and the only reason I can think of him denying knowing Robin is because if you didn't know him how could we've gotten that information from him
2: right yeah
4: we never implicated him we always told I always said I think Kevin knows things that make him feel really bad that he did feel bad whether he did it or not he felt bad
2: yeah yeah I do
4: believe that well whoever all was there all of them were guilty whoever they may be
2: yeah I, I agree with that
4: Yes, whoever was there was guilty for not stopping it, for letting it, allow it to
5: happen.
2: Eventually the day came for Kevin Williams to face a judge and be held accountable for his actions in the meth trade in southeast Missouri. His attorney, George Gilmore, reminded the judge of Kevin's help with the investigation. Quote, His involvement with the conspiracy case, that I think has been referred to as Speed Bump 1, I can't summarize it any better than Jeff Nance did before the grand jury when he said, I interviewed Kevin for the first time on the 31st of last year, that would be 1994. And that is mainly how this whole investigation originated. Mr. Williams, in fact, was the first to give names of individuals who were making the methamphetamine, supplying the methamphetamine, the truck drivers bringing it back to Missouri, and the distribution of it here in southeast Missouri. And I think it has been instrumental in that lab, as far as I know, no longer existing. And he continues to cooperate with the government. Unquote. The judge offered Williams a moment to address the court. And this is what Williams said. Quote, I can hardly talk. I know I have committed a crime. Like George said, the only thing I have ever really done wrong until I got involved with in this, I had a couple of run-ins in alcohol, drinking and driving and what have you. I wish I had never gotten involved with what I got involved in. And I know I did wrong, and I know I deserve to be punished. I understand all of that. I just wish it was all behind me and I wasn't worried about this every day. Right now, I was back to being a father and a husband. I just want to say I'm sorry for everything that has happened, and sorry for meeting the people that I met because of this. I wished we had not had to meet under these circumstances. I just want to do good and not get involved in nothing like this again and just live a normal life. I just want to say I am sorry to everybody here and I am sorry to my family. That's about it. Unquote. Williams was sentenced to five years in prison and five years of probation. In October of 1996, after Williams was sentenced, but before Mark Abbott went to prison, A private investigator interviewed an ex-girlfriend of Williams. The ex-girlfriend said both Kevin Williams and Mark Abbott told her about the murder. The interviewee told the private investigator that Williams bragged that he, quote, shut one girl's mouth, unquote, for interfering in his drug deals, and he warned her that he would do the same to her if she ever told anyone what he told her. The girlfriend said she'd received drugs from Williams and Abbott. She said Williams did a lot of drug deals in Sykeston and spent a lot of time in Sykeston. She told the investigator they killed Wallace because she interfered in his drug deals. She said she thought it involved a blackmail from either Sykeston or Poplar Bluff. Mark Abbott finally pleaded guilty on February 27, 1997 and was scheduled for sentencing in July of that year. But when it came time for Mark to turn himself in, he stood up his mother, who was waiting in the courtroom for her son to arrive for his sentencing. Instead, he cut off his ankle monitor and disappeared, eventually landing in southwest Missouri, where he was pulled over, hauling a trailer he used to manufacture meth. He was arrested some two months after the warrant was issued for his arrest. So eventually Mark Abbott went to prison too, for much longer than his counterparts because he fled. But at some point in 1997, while sitting in Perryville Jail, awaiting his sentencing, Mark Abbott, through a jailer, reached out to Bill Bonert. Bonert was the officer you heard from Episode 8. He was a narcotics officer who made the original arrest on Kevin Williams. Now, some three years later, he was a narcotics officer. And Mark Abbott had some information for him. Alright, so I want to uh, take you back to uh, to 1997 um, when... Uh, you got a you got a phone call um, about Mark Abbott. Can you just kind of take me back there and provide some context, some background to how that call came about, and then um, you know what you learned.
3: Uh, Mark Abbott had been arrested for uh, drug distribution, and he was a federal prisoner, so he was being held at the uh, Perry County Jail because they held federal prisoners. Uh, he was up there. <clears throat> I got word from. Uh, D. Age and Herman Hoag that Abbott, Mark Abbott, wanted to talk to me or want to talk to somebody or to me up at the uh, county jail. So I said I'd drive up and see what he wanted to say. In these situations, a lot of times we have people say this, but really they don't give out any information or that much. We realize what they're up to. But in this situation, I went, he wanted to talk to me about the Michelle Lawless murder.
2: Okay. So, um, it- was this a can you can you describe kind of the um the ambiance of the place is this, is this a small interview room or you know like what, what yeah. was it what was it like there in the in the perry county jail
3: yeah they took us to a small interview room uh we were just myself and uh, mark abbott in there um and i spoke to him about what information he had to give us
2: okay so um just be- before we get into that you said uh earlier that um mark had been an informant for you before can you talk a little bit about that
3: yeah when mark had uh, been involved in different things and uh, we were able to use him as an informant on different cases and uh, i don't know if he was that good of an informant but uh, we used him for some information
2: okay and so uh he calls you and and you had known him from uh past personal interactions correct
3: I've known him, I'd known him since he was a young boy. We actually went to church with him and his brother and his parents.
2: Okay. So you have known him for a while. Do you think that's one of the reasons why he wanted to, to talk to you?
3: Well, probably that, but he also wanted to talk to me because uh, he he had worked with me as, as an informant and, and uh, I'm assuming that's, he felt comfortable talking to me. So. Okay.
2: So uh, you go in there in this interview room. Um, he's called you in. you sit down uh, so what does he begin to tell you?
3: He wants to tell me about the M- Michelle Lawless murder and how he knew who did it and how it happened. And, and, uh, to give me some details about it.
2: Okay. So, um, w- what did he say that he saw to kind of t- tell me the story, what he told
4: you?
3: Well, he said that, uh, Michelle Lawless and, uh, Kevin Williams, who's a friend of his were having an affair. um, <clears throat> That um, him and Kevin were together that night. They ran into Michelle. Michelle uh, and Kevin were kind of arguing. Uh, she told him that she was going to go to his house and tell his wife that he was having an affair with her and that she was pregnant. Michelle was pregnant with his with Kevin Lawless, a uh, Kevin Williams child. Uh, so she supposedly got in her car, uh, took off driving up the interstate. And uh, that uh, Kevin Williams and Mark Abbott got into a truck and started following her up the road, trying to get her to stop.
2: Okay, so then they got her to stop. Uh, did he say, did he say anything about how how they got her to stop? Ah, uh,
3: they were saying they were behind her, flashing their lights and blowing their horn, trying to get her to stop.
2: Okay, so uh, so then the car stops. Then what what did Mark say happened?
3: Uh, Mark said they stopped on the Benton exit. That Kevin got out. He stayed in the car. He said that. Uh, Kevin went up to the car, he heard them arguing some, talking some, arguing some, and then he heard some gunshots.
2: Okay. Um, did, did Mark say where they had been coming from, or did he say uh, what happened after that?
3: He said they had driven, following her from the Sexton area up to the Benton exit. Okay. They would have been going northbound on 55.
2: Okay. But he didn't say, you know, if they were at a party or, you know, where they were at? Um, no, before. he did not say that. Okay. Okay, so um, did did Mark give any detail about what happened right after that, like what, where they went or anything of that nature? Uh, Mark
3: said as soon as the shooting happened, uh, he saw Kevin Williams ran off toward the east to the toward the Farrell mobile homes uh, trailer lot. Uh, he went up and uh, checked on Michelle. Uh, so at that time, he went and tried to uh, he went to the sheriff's office to get help.
2: Okay. So that part of the story sticks with what he he said at the actual mm-hmm. uh, at the actual trial that mm-hmm. he went to the the pay phone and then went on to the sheriff's mm-hmm. to report the crime. But in this interaction it was it wasn't that he just stumbled upon it that he actually saw the murder. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay, so what did you do then? You had this information that that had to be, you know, what's going through your mind at that point? Like this this had to be kind of Different than what you're used
3: to. Well, it was, and I, I had no clue what to do. So I went and I talked to the uh, Cape Girardeau County Prosecuting Attorney and told him what what I'd been told. Um, we sat there and talked a little bit, and uh, Morley recommended that I contact Don Wyndham, who was the lead investigator for the Highway Patrol on the case. So I agreed to do that. I went and I called Don Wyndham and I told him the information I had. I said that Abbott is in the um, Perry County Jail, this is the information he gave me and that somebody should go talk to him. And uh, Don Wendell basically told me, he says, we have a conviction in that murder case, in the Lawless case, and uh, we're not gonna reopen it. And uh, that was it.
0: Yeah.
3: And so uh, we kind of figured talking to Morley also, Morley Swingle, the attorney, that uh, it would be a waste of time talking to Bill Farrell.
2: Okay.
0: So that's
3: kind of where it ended at.
2: Okay. So beginning in 1997, the word was out that Mark Abbott was a liar. There's no getting around it. Either he lied in court to convict Josh Kieser, or he was lying to Bonert about his drug buddy Kevin Williams. Now remember, anyone investigating the case had to have known how many times Mark Abbott's story changed during the initial investigation. Now he was putting himself at the scene as a witness, watching his friend kill Michelle after a fight over a pregnancy. There are a handful of interesting things to consider here. One, Mark was working the pregnancy narrative into his story. Did he pick that up from the trial? Did he pick that up based on his own personal knowledge? No one has ever claimed to me or in any document that I've seen that Michelle dated Kevin Williams, much less being pregnant by him. The story is a little different with Mark Abbott, though. Anyway, second interesting thing to take away from his statement was that Mark Abbott said Williams retreated to the sales lot to hide out. This is something I've heard time and time again over the course of my investigation. And thirdly, Bonert reported this to Bill Farrell through Don Wyndham. Wyndham confirmed to me personally that he told Bill Farrell this information twice.
6: So when I was in prison, eventually over the years, I started to work in prison industries in the old walls in Jeff city we had several different industries, chemical plant, license plates, furniture plant we had different, you know, shoe plant, clothing plant. And, um, throughout the longevity of my time there, and I worked in every single one that I just mentioned, except the shoe plant. Um, at the time it was, conversation i'm going to recount came up i was working in the furniture factory i was a clerk and subject of uh, innocence had come up and how i'd been claiming innocence i didn't talk about it too often but one of the bosses asked me how much time i spend um we were on break and he asked me um one of the guys from the street that came in was a boss asked me how much time i spend in the law library and i said not that much he said why if you you claim you're innocent i said well i did i've been in the law library and i I read some of the law books and when i'm reading these books i would see something that applies to me and then i would bring it to the law clerk and they say no that don't apply to you i said i'm pretty sure that applies to me they're like no no that don't apply to you you don't understand what you're reading and uh that, that, that law has since been appealed and changed. And it, it just seemed like every year, some, a new law was being passed or changed or amended. And I had already gone through an appeal process. I, when I first went in, they had a twenty four nineteen appeal process. That was your first, um, appeal and. At that point, I still had a relationship with David, David Rosner, and um, he knew that if I was going to file a proper appeal, then I had to throw, and he believed it was rightfully so, right, because of how things had transpire, transpired um, with the accusations of the um, snitch witnesses and that, you know, claiming that he had intimidated them and whatnot. he he kind of knew that I was going to have to throw him under the bus. And he didn't really have a problem with that. Um, At least I don't remember him having a problem with that. I I, I knew that he he thought it was unfair because he didn't do it, but he understood why. So I'm still talking to him, but now I've also got this other lawyer, Gary Brotherton, out of the um, Missouri State Appeals Office and i talked to this guy on the phone i don't even remember how many times maybe once maybe twice um we rode a couple times he never came to see me uh, he had a big problem with uh with david um him and david just didn't see eye that eye and that was being made clear to me and i didn't know what to do right here's this guy that you know spent you know year year and a half defended me i felt like it would be um you know incumbent upon the uh my, my new attorney to to talk to him it just didn't feel like the, they were getting along and he ends up filing um i i, I end up i can't remember if you yeah he filed a 2915 or didn't can't remember my everything was a haze at that point but I do remember like at my at my sentencing hearing, they presented David now presented like fifty points of trial error. And it was these fifty points that we needed to bring into the twenty nine fifteen. And the guy, Gary, never came in to see me. Um didn't really have a relationship with him. And uh I ended up losing that. And then, or we didn't file it, I can't remember. Then I lost my first appeal. That was disheartening because I remember the judge, there was an article in Southeast Missouri and the judge at the time, um, I think it was a Judge Grimm, I can't remember, um, had stated that clearly there was constitutional violations in my case, but due to procedural error, <laughs> What did I know about that? I wasn't even a high school graduate at the time. I was taking my, my GED in prison when that uh, when that came out. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, if you can see the constitutional violation, was doesn't matter if it was procedural or not. And then the Supreme Court refused to see my case. So I was stuck. So I remember telling the, uh, by that time, you know, I'm, I've been through a lot in a short period of time in prison. And uh speak doing my best to get through. I remember telling my boss, I said, you know, I was, time I read these law books, I get told it doesn't apply to me. But if I read that Bible, what oh, doesn't change? It doesn't change. The Bible don't change. You know, you can read a law book every day, and every year they'll have a new edition out and a change here and there. But the Bible don't change. So people's opinion about that law will change, but God don't change. And I think I'd rather just spend my time getting to know God and getting to know what he thinks. I'll just trust him. Took some time. (laughs) That worked because I credit God to this day for being the one that brought me Jane Williams, brought me Charlie Weiss, Steve Snodgrass, Jim Worsh, Rick Walter, Brandon Cade, Ben Poston,
2: Bridget Cosmo, you. Things were quiet for a few years there in the late 1990s and early 2000s. In 2000, year of the Y2K scare, if you remember that, Rick Walter decided to run against Bill Farrell for Sheriff of Scott County. He would eventually lose this race, but he picked up some interesting information during his campaigning, and I wanted to share that story with you. I wanted to talk to you uh, a little bit, just kind of start with the, the politics just a little bit, um, you mentioned earlier that in 2000, uh, you ran for office the f- first time against Bill Farrell, yes. correct? Yes. Um, uh, you, you, d- during that time, you had an occasion to run into Larry Abbott while you were campaigning, correct? Right. Can you tell me about that?
0: I, I didn't really know Larry. Um, didn't know any of really, the Abbott's at all. That was in 2000, year 2000. I was in Scott City, just um, walking door to door and had crossed the parking lot, this parking lot of the, of the little service station, or self-serve, I guess. And there was three guys was uh, out in the parking lot by, the, by this vehicle, and anyway, I introduced myself and I told them I was running for sheriff. And uh, the other two left don't know who it was. I don't remember their ages. I, I don't remember anything about them. Uh, but after that, um, he introduced himself, told me who he was. And, uh, he said, uh, you know, he said, Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He says about time a younger man gets in there. He said, like you, you can get in there and make some good money. Uh, I knew what the salary was. I, I, I guess I really wasn't following exactly what he meant. Um, and I guess you can interpret that any way you want to. Uh, but uh, he, I guess he thought I knew who he was, because he told me that a lot of times he does a lot of deals and has, does a lot of cash deals, and and that he, we walked over to his truck and he opened up a, a briefcase, and uh, it, was, it was a lot of money in that briefcase, and with him, you know, I, you call that a clue, I guess, with him talking about it's time that somebody else makes some good could make some good money. Um, and he has to do a lot of cash deals, and he carries cash with him all the time. Um, it was time for me to exit, that make an exit, and I shook his hand. I said, I appreciate, uh, appreciate your vote, and left, and, and Ned didn't have any other interaction with him. Didn't go back, didn't want to talk to him after that. Uh, it just didn't sound right to me
2: at all. Just in case you dozed off for a minute and didn't catch that, I want to reiterate what Rick Walter just said. He's campaigning. He runs into Larry Abbott, father of the twins, the father of Mark and Matt Abbott. And Larry Abbott, who we've already talked about having a role in Operation Speed Bump, tells him, Bill Farrell's already made enough money as sheriff. Maybe it's time for a young guy like you to start making yours. How brazen. Right? That's an incredible story.
0: We we ran the election, we lost uh, with, we was in a, a couple hundred votes of of, of that election. So um, I thought we gotta do it, we have to try it again. Yeah, so by time.
2: that point, Bill Farrell had been in office 24 years, right? I believe so, yeah. Let's see, he, he took office
1: in...
0: He took office in uh, uh, year 77. He won the election in 76, took office in yeah. 77. And uh, at that time, I ran against him. It was it was uh, year two thousand. Yeah. Um, it was a, it was kind of an uh, ugly election, not really on our part because we were new to politics. We didn't know anything about politics. I just knew that I wanted to be law enforcement. Um, and and I at that time I had uh, went from being a reserve to full time, um, and there was a lot of things that I thought wasn't quite right with the sheriff's office. Um, there was some suspicious in my mind, uh, things going on, um, nothing I could really prove or at that time even try to prove. Um, but I decided the only way to change, uh, the sheriff's office was actually to run and, and do it as sheriff. He wasn't going to do it as deputy. I confronted Bill. I said, maybe that's not the right term confronting, but actually taking some stuff to him about things that I thought was going on in the department was wrong. And, uh, he pretty much uh just let me know under uh, no certain terms that he was not having any any of that. He had an open door policy, but when you went to him with anything, it definitely wasn't an open door. Uh he uh, he did he wasn't open to any criticism uh that he said he 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 was um, I think that actually and I don't know how deep you want to get into that, but actually the straw for me was whenever I had been working nights for him. And we, me and another deputy was making a lot of drug cases. And I was actually brought into the sheriff's office and told not to make any more drug cases, uh, that I was making too many. Uh, I asked him at that point, I said, um, asking for the other deputy, I said, was he not doing his job? Was I not doing my job? He said, oh, you're doing your job. We were doing our reports. We was getting everything in at the right time and doing everything we are supposed to do. but we were making too many cases and i when i crossed the line i said well uh, who am i getting too close to because uh, we're doing everything we're supposed to do that's i thought that was part of our job and whenever i that i asked him that is whenever he told me to get the hell out of his office and he you know he didn't want to he wasn't going to put up with any of that we got up and left and i told the other deputy i said i i'm leaving you know and i know that this is wrong and there's something else going on here so um i quit
2: when uh, when was this
0: that was probably in 96 97 and um that's when i decided i had quit a job that i was making a pretty good living uh making a lot more money better benefits i just law enforcement was always my passion i just wanted to get into it as i said earlier it was, it was didn't really pay a whole lot but I, at that point in my life i was able to maybe back and, and, and get in law enforcement and and uh, be able to get by with what we what they were paying, uh, I decided to return back to where I had come from. They, that company had contacted me offered me a better job, more money, so I left. And at that point, I decided, I think I'm going to run for sheriff.
2: Okay. So that was, uh, you said, 96, 97, somewhere in there? Somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah. So did, did you, um, you know, was it immediately that, like... You turned in your resignation like right after that conversation it, it was shorter thereafter, after yes yeah okay um so um so you left on your own yes terms yeah. and you were not not fired no
0: no i wasn't fired i i decided that that uh again that, you know there was a lot of things going on that i had taken to him and it was there was stuff that had that come up missing uh uh, reports that uh, and and messages that that uh, that I saw and went back to try to find them were, had disappeared. Uh, and I, when I told him about all of, all of those things, he was not interested in hearing any
2: of that. Yeah. That was 96 97 That was about the time that Beth was really uh, really blowing up. I mean, in fact, that was probably about the time that the speed case case was happening. Uh, the, the very ring that uh, Mark and Kevin ended up being. Again, Walter lost that race, and Bill Farrell would begin his last term in office, but more evidence and information regarding Michelle's murder began to surface, and a woman named Kathy Fowler played a key role in that effort in late 2001. By this time, Josh had been in prison for nearly a decade. Kathy's husband, Jimmy Joe Fowler, was one of Kevin's drug associates. He was named in the speed bump files. Kathy remembered a certain conversation her late husband had with Kevin Williams before Williams went to prison on his meth charges. Jimmy Joe Fowler died tragically and somewhat suspiciously when a car he was working on fell on him. Kathy told me she believed Jimmy Joe was not killed as a result of this accident. She said there was an area of sand near where her husband had been working on the car and that area had been smoothed over as to cover up boot prints. She said it made no sense for that sand to have been smooth. At any rate... She called Bill Farrell in late 2001, saying that she overheard a conversation between Williams and her husband that the Abbott twins were involved in the murder and that the wrong man was sentenced. I have a copy of that letter. She also did a recorded interview with the pastor where some of Josh's relatives went to church. I do not have a copy of that recording, but what we're going to do instead here is play a reenactment of testimony that Fowler would give in 2008. So again, this is reenacted testimony from Kathy Fowler in 2008 regarding what she heard in the 1990s.
1: Good morning, Mrs. Fowler. Will you state your full name for the court, please?
5: Kathy Marie Fowler. Where do you live? 388 Country Club Club Drive in Cape Girardeau. Have you been in Cape Girardeau most of your life? Southeast Missouri area. I grew up in Scott City and moved away when I was 10. My dad was in insurance. We traveled a lot. And then in 1984, came back to Scott. City.
1: And how long were you working for Day Company?
5: I worked for Day Company until 1997 when I resigned because my husband had gotten killed and I had a five-year-old son and I was actually working two jobs at the time. And the other was Wonder Hostess. And I chose that job because I was part-time and I needed to spend time with my five-year-old son.
1: You indicated you got a You got divorced initially. Did you remarry then?
5: I was married to a man named Ray Thomas when I owned the bar. I got divorced, and then I ended up marrying a man named Jim Fowler.
1: And when did Jim Fowler get killed?
5: He got killed 12 years ago yesterday.
1: And how did that happen?
5: He was in the backyard working on the truck, and somehow the jack fell, and the truck fell on him.
1: That was a tragedy. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know a Kevin Williams? Yes, I do. Do you know a Mark or Matt Abbott? Yes, I know both of them. And how do you know Kevin Williams?
5: Well, I'd heard of Kevin Williams. His parents used to come to my bar, never met him. Actually, the first time I ever met him was March of 1992. It was Jim and my two-year anniversary, and we were in a nightclub called the Purple Crackle in Illinois, And my husband went to get a drink, and Kevin Williams came up and actually sucker-punched him, hit him. Punched? Hit him, yeah. So that was your first
1: meeting with Kevin Williams? That
5: was my first meeting with Kevin Williams, yes.
1: And did you run into him afterwards? Well. After that one occasion?
5: Yes. In 1993, he and my husband kind of became friends. They had gone to a party at a mutual friend. They hung out all night. And the next thing I knew, Kevin Williams was coming to our house.
1: Why was Kevin Williams coming to your house?
5: Because he had recruited Jim to help him deal methamphetamine.
1: So your husband worked with Kevin in the meth business. Yes. Did Kevin ever give your husband a gun? Yes, he did. Tell me about that.
5: It was a black pistol. It was an automatic with a clip about this long. Don't know much about guns now. I'm not real sure what it was.
1: Did your husband keep it in your house? Yes, he did. Did there come a time when, you're, when you told your husband he had to break off his relationship with Kevin Williams? Yes, I did. What did you say, and what happened that day?
5: Well, at the time, Kevin Williams and Jim had become whatever they were. We lived in Castle, Missouri, rented. Well, we bought a mobile home out in the country in Benton. When we moved to Benton, I told Jim, I said, you are to cut ties with this man. There will be no more of what has been going on. I will not allow it or I will be gone. And he said, fine. I said, well, the only tie you still have left with Williams is the pistol he gave you. Please call him. I want it out of the house. And then you have no reason to have any contact with him after that.
1: And did he call Kevin? Did Kevin come over?
5: Well, he contacted him somehow. I don't know if he called him, ran into him. But yes, Kevin came over to our house, and that would have been the fall of 1994.
1: Were you there in your house?
5: Yeah, we were in a mobile home. It was a living room with a little bar. I was there. My five-year-old son was there. Jim was there. Another couple were there.
1: What occurred?
5: We were just sitting there. He'd just gotten there.
1: He, Kevin Williams?
5: Kevin Williams had just gotten there, just conversing, nothing specific, and out of the blue, Kevin said, well, you know, the little girl that got killed up here on the 55, or the exit there at 55 and 177, he said, they've got the wrong person in prison for that. And I kind of went, what are you talking about? And he goes, they've got the wrong person. I was like, well, how do you know? He said, because I was there. He said, I was there... With Mark Abbott, and he said it started out at one of the trailers at Farrell Trailer Court. Things got rough that night, they hurt her, they had to move her, and Mark Abbott killed her.
1: And, And Mark Abbott killed her?
5: Mark Abbott killed her.
1: You can't be mistaken in that.
5: I cannot be mistaken. This has been in my head since the day he told me. And then the conversation just went quiet after he said that.
1: As if he wanted to change the subject?
5: He wanted to change the subject, and everybody sitting there was kind of like, do you believe something like this? You know, I mean, it's something you don't just bring up in general conversation.
1: After hearing this, what, if anything, did you do?
5: Well, we gave him the gun. He left. I just kind of looked at my husband and said, what was that all about? And he said, oh, just put it out of your head. And I really didn't ask any more questions. My husband could be gruff sometimes, and I just didn't want to upset him, get him mad.
1: Then your husband got killed after that?
5: My husband got killed, like I say, it was 12 years ago yesterday, 1996.
1: Did you ever report this conversation that you just described to us to anyone?
5: No, I discussed it with my parents. I discussed it with my my boyfriend at the time, who is now my fiancé, They basically said, you know, maybe you should say something, but, you know, you don't know if it's true or if it's not true, and who would you tell?
1: Did you ultimately decide to call somebody, or...?
5: Uh, Yes, I did. Uh, After an incident in 2001, I was at my brother-in-law, my dead husband's brother and his wife's house, and there was a young man there named Matt Moore that I had known because I'd known all these... they They were kids to me. And he got, we got to talking about different ones. I had been away from Scott City, you know, what they were doing now, and the Abbott boys.
1: Your Honor, I'm going to object. Uh, I think she's going to get into hearsay about what Matt Moore told her.
5: Okay, well, anyway, he told me, anyway, basically he said that they were in prison for meth. And I said, well, they probably should have been. And then he mentioned Mark should be in prison for something else and I kind of asked what, and then he repeated basically the same story that Mark had bragged to him that he'd shot the lawless girl, and at that point, all that Williams said came back in my head, and when I left there that day, I talked to my parents again, and I talked to my other half, and they said, yes, you have to tell someone, and I wasn't sure who to tell because I wasn't sure who to trust, and at that point, I have a 33-year-old son. I called him, and he said, Well, Mom, I've got a friend who works for Jay Nixon. She's an assistant for him. Her name is Amy Patton. I've got her number. Call her and see what you should do. I called Amy Patton, and she said, Do not tell me the case. Do not tell me the name. All I can do is advise you what to do. She said to contact the lawyer, and I really didn't know the lawyer. The lawyer for... For Josh Keiser and I didn't even know Josh Keiser's name at the time. I knew about the murder case, had read about it in the paper, but the names weren't there. I went to the library, found old papers, got the names, and I did call Al Lovas.
1: You called Al Lowe's? Yes, I did. After you heard he was the attorney... He
5: was the attorney...
1: For the case of the murder of the girl in Benton.
5: Yes, Michelle Lawless. And at that time, I knew the names then. I pretty much relayed the story I had heard from Williams. He got a few things wrong in his report, but he said that he would forward it on to the authorities.
1: Who, Uh, Al Lowe said that?
5: Al Lowe's. A few days later, I got a copy of a letter that he had sent to Farrell, stating that I had information that might be helpful in the case. And then I waited to hear from Farrell, and I didn't. About two weeks after that letter, I called Sheriff Farrell myself, told him who I was, Asked him if he received the letter from Al Lois, and he said he did. I said, well, would you like me to come down and, you know, talk to me about this? He said, no, there's no need. He said, I don't need to hear anything from you. I've got my conviction. Case closed. That was it? That was it. Okay, I need to follow up on something Ms.
2: Valor talked about in that testimony. It concerns Matt Moore. Matt Moore died several years ago, I'm told, of an overdose, but he and his family were family friends with the Abbott family. The letter Fowler sent to Farrell, as well as the statement she gave to the pastor, which I have a summarized report of, mentioned Matt Moore, and that he told Fowler that a man nicknamed Taco Speakman, whose real name was Robert Mancillas, was at one point given the gun that killed Michelle Lawless, or at least he knew where it was. Some sources I've talked to said they believe that the gun that Jimmy Joe Fowler had was passed along to Taco. I reached out to Mansilis a couple of times, but I was not able to connect with him before he died last year of natural causes. But more recently, I got my hands on a document I'd never seen before. The private investigator, Jim Sullins, who worked on this case on behalf of Josh Kieser's family, did catch up with Taco. The report was dated August 5th, 2006. In a written summary of the interaction, Taku did not admit to having the gun or disposing of the gun and said he did not know anything about the lawless murder. Quote, When asked if he was asked to hide or get rid of the gun for Mark Abbott, he stated that he was accused of hiding something. That four or five years earlier, Bill Farrell and Larry Abbott came by and accused him of that same thing. When asked if it was a gun he was accused of hiding, he replied, yes, that it was. Unquote. I contacted a person once very close to Mansilis. The source told me that Taco had confided to her the basics of what was in that report. She said he told her about the same amount of information he told the investigator. She said she believed that Mansilis knew more about the murder, but would not talk about it. Quote, I think Robert knew about the weapon. I know Robbie knew a lot more than what he was telling. So to reiterate, Mansilis told two different people, that Bill Farrell, who was supposedly confident in the conviction, and Larry Abbott, Mark and Matt Abbott's father, had come to see him regarding his knowledge of the murder weapon. According to the report made in 2006, Mancillas said Larry Abbott and Bill Farrell came by about four or five years earlier, which would have been about the same time that Bill Farrell received Fowler's letter. So at this point in 2001, we have three separate people who have told Bill Farrell that either the Abbott's or Williams were involved in the Michelle Lawless murder. We have Ron Burton, who came forward a few months after the conviction in 1994. We have Mark Abbott claiming through Bill Bonert in 1997 that Williams had killed Michelle. And we have Kathy Fowler in 2001. This does not include what the private investigator had recorded with one of Williams' ex girlfriends. Um, in two, uh, and Bill retired in 2004, correct? Yes. And so you ran for office there. Yes. And so you, you started, um, you know, your first term as sheriff. In 05.
0: In 05,
2: yeah. January of 05. Um, how long was it before you started hearing things about the the Michelle Lawless murder?
0: I'd been hearing things about the Michelle Lawless murder long before that, uh, whenever I was working the road in the nineties, when I say working the road as a road deputy, uh, people was asking me then, uh, about the Michelle Lawless case. They, the rumors on the street were that they had the wrong guy in jail. Uh, does it prove anything? Doesn't prove anything, but you know, you, you still, uh, you still listen to, to the, to those folks. And, and, uh, if you listen enough, you know, there's some truth in there somewhere. You just you just have to wade through uh, through all, all of that all of the BS I guess um, so I've always had my doubts about that case again I after the night of uh, of the murder I had very little uh, involvement in the case because I was reserved you know and, and I didn't think anything about it um, I do remember that the the, 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 the day that they had uh, Come down, come down with a guilty verdict. Um, I was watching the news that night, and they said that he was—they found him guilty. And I had told my wife, I said they just—they just, they just um, convicted that kid on nothing. But again, I didn't know what all they had, just because I wasn't privy to all that information, which was fine at the time. I didn't think anything about it. Um, just from what I knew, they didn't have anything. So I'd been hearing this a lot um, that. He wasn't involved, that Josh Kieser wasn't involved in this case, uh, that he was innocent. So when I took office, uh, we started looking for the the case file. Uh, when I took office, the evidence room was trashed. Uh, there was nothing in order. Uh, there was stuff everywhere. And so we started looking for it. And as we started working our way through the evidence room, trying to clean it up and, and organize uh, we would find, we might find a uh, box with some files in it, uh, maybe some evidence, and it, it wasn't all at one time. It was just scattered throughout the, the evidence room. There, uh, you might find a, a box that had Michelle Lawless uh, case files in it, along with a, an assault case or a drug case or something that wasn't even related to that. Just, just, it was all just thrown in a box so it was, it was very disorganized, and, uh, but I was actively looking for everything I could find on that lawless case, uh, right after I took office.
2: Okay, so you started kind of setting it off in one, in one particular place where, you know, you could, could find everything. Right,
0: right, and, and it was, like I said, it was, it was just as, as we came to it, because we didn't know where to look, and, uh, Actually, after we found quite a bit of stuff, uh, I thought we well, there was enough here to to, to maybe um, set everything aside and, and and start going through it. Uh, and later, uh, we found another box. This was this could have been know, a couple months later. Um, that's how that's how how much of a mess that the evidence locker or the evidence room was was at the time. Um, we actually I went up. It was an upstairs kind of a unfinished area in the jail, the new jail. And uh I we put a made it into a room, a locked room uh that only myself and uh, uh one other guy had a key to. And so we started putting everything in there and then separating it, everything we could find and and um uh, and going through the evidence, going through reports at that time.
2: Okay. Um take a a bigger picture type of question. What are the requirements for storage, uh, and, uh, retention for murder cases?
4: Well,
0: at, at the time, I mean, that case was closed. So, uh, I was lucky to find anything because, um, you know, after, after, after this closed out, uh, those files and, and and they could have, they could have done anything with those. So, it wasn't like it was an open, active case. You know, they had a conviction. Uh, the it was closed. They're done with it. Um, but I, I kept it to myself that that's what I was going to do. I was going to look into this case. Bill Farrell knew that I disagreed with him. Matter of fact, there's a couple times it came up that I disagreed with him, and you know, he was uh, very adamant about he's got the right guy in jail. So. Uh, if they would have known themselves where the files were at, they probably would have been destroyed before I took office, uh, because before I took office, uh, they were destroying a lot of stuff, and I have no idea what it was because the people that still were still working there when I took office, uh, they said that they had brought a dumpster in, and they was just loading stuff up and throwing stuff away and shredding documents, and I, I have no idea what was what yeah. was gone at that time. So,
2: yeah. uh, it, well, and it's you know the the. Um under state law you're you're allowed to destroy records after a certain uh certain period of time but i think it it, it all depends on the level of offense like certain offenses you have to keep everything um you know so i mean it's not unusual for government agencies to destroy a lot of files from time to time right but but like you said it's um who, who knows what went out the door at that point um Okay, so so uh, how this thing, uh, uh, you know, you you had you had doubts from years years uh, back about the conviction of Josh Kunzer. You start taking all the stuff, you know, kind of putting it all in one place. You start going through the files. Um, You know, did was there an aha moment, or was there like a, a time where you knew that this was getting serious, or you know? For you, when did this thing turn on?
0: Well, in 05, like I said, I took office in '05. We started looking for the files, and and I started again, started laying everything out and, and, and going through it. Um, from just what I could read and what I could what I could see, what I was finding, uh, it was definitely enough to uh, to open the case, reopen the case, and 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 uh, investigate it. Um, but I did I I gave it. It was enough for me to to open a, give it an official number in '06. I waited. I wanted to make sure that before I did that that we were, we knew what we were looking at. Um, I had brought in a guy as a part time. He was working at another agency. Uh, when I when I he wanted to come to work for me. I asked him if he knew anything about the Michelle Lawless case. He didn't know anything about it. He wasn't in the area. He was he was in service at the time that this happened. Um, wasn't from the area. Uh, he started working part time for me. We started going through the the, the information that we had. I had, I hired him uh, as a full time detective, and that's whenever he started on this case. And I gave him an official number. So uh, it was just I, it was just kind of a a uh, uh, slow enough, uh, because I still had day-to-day operations and I had to run. I'm, right. You know, I'm in, a, I'm yeah. working at a facility, uh, running a facility that, that, you know, that was in disarray. Uh, I had new people that I had to hire because I had issues with some of the other folks that I, you know, trust issues. So I'm trying to go through all this stuff and still run a, run a sheriff's office, you know, with the jail, the courts, uh, the road deputies, I mean, you know, transporting inmates. So we, we had, there was a whole lot going on. But uh, so whenever I was able to uh, say, yeah, there's, there's definitely enough here. And the reason why I brought another person in that didn't have any connection with this area that uh, I wanted that person to find out on his own. You know, I didn't want to lead him in any, any direction. You know, I might get him started. And if he needed help, I would help him. But I wanted him to find out uh, a lot of this information on his own, instead of me pointing and saying, "You don't need to go talk to this person." I did some of that later, uh, because he may not known the folks. But uh, um, he come he after after he started investigating, he come to his own conclusion too. Um, that's when uh, that's when I knew that we you know we definitely need to to uh, try to help you know uncover some more information. Now, you know, who, who else was involved. I didn't personally, I didn't think Josh was, but I didn't, I never did tell the detective that I let him find that whenever he came to me and he said, this kid didn't have anything to do with this. That's whenever we could sit down and and I can give him more of my
2: opinion. So Walter reopened the case. He blew the dust off the files and he started learning dug out all the old evidence, and started a review. Only a couple of weeks into the investigation, though, he was still very much trying to figure things out. That's when Walter got a phone call from a man named Kevin Williams. Williams wanted to come talk to the new sheriff. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to the Lawless Files.
1: Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Graham. We'd like to thank Jacob Weigand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe.
2: Next time on The Lawless Files.